And we continue here with Our American Stories, and we love to hear your stories. You're the hour in Our American Stories. And send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our very favorites. And now, a story from a listener named Mark Levy, who hears the show on the great KOA in Denver. And today, this father pays tribute to his son. My 35-year-old son is a quiet hero. As a teenager, he began to exhibit a variety of strange physical ailments. He got skinny and occasionally fell after losing his balance. He often felt exhausted and sometimes vomited. This went on for two or three years while he saw neurologists and other specialists until a simple overlooked blood test revealed Graves' disease which is an autoimmune disease that results in an overactive thyroid gland. After a few years of partially successful attempts to control the disease with drugs, he had his thyroid removed. After many years, his thyroid hormone levels, now mostly provided by an oral drug, stabilized. One of the symptoms of Graves' disease is anxiety and depression. One day, 19 years ago, before his thyroid levels were under control, I found a note he had written to no one explaining his unfathomable sadness and realized he was on the verge of suicide. I'd informed him a few weeks earlier that a friend of his at high school had killed herself, and I knew the idea of suicide spreads among teenagers like a virus. He spent a week in a pediatric psych ward at the hospital and began a regimen of antidepressants and therapy that helped pull him out of the darkness over a period of a couple of years. There was the day I sat with him in the hospital and explained to him how much pain his death would cause to so many people who loved him. It's hard to describe what it's like to have your son want to end his own life. I can tell you it's a whole lot better than having your son actually end his own life, but it takes a toll on the whole family. Of course, I'm so grateful that Eitan recovered. He went to Sarah Lawrence College because they focus on writing as a method of learning. He was a sort of normal kid there for a while but he was always searching for ways to make his life meaningful after having considered ending his own life. Professor suggested he consider his own religious heritage and Eitan took a trip to Israel and fell in love with the place. They had something he was looking for. Israelis live every day building their ancestral homeland and creating a unique country with a unique culture. For religious Israelis, They build this future while meeting religious obligations in the place their history and theology tells them it should be done. And they do it under constant threat of destruction from people who see the entire enterprise very differently. All of that created a tremendous pull on my boy with his renewed love of life, and he spent a year at Hebrew University and then became an Israeli citizen. Lots of religious American Jewish kids move to Israel for a while, but not so many stay. 
moving to a new country is not so easy. The language and the culture is different and hard to master. Most of the American Jewish kids who go to Israel come from Orthodox homes and have a path to a yeshiva that fits them, or they go to an Israeli Defense Force unit for a crash course in Israeli culture and to defend the state. Eitan had neither a clear path to a yeshiva or to the army. He grew up in a home, mine, that only started observing the laws of the Jewish Sabbath, Shabbat, years after he left for Israel. He did have some Jewish education, but not a clear path to a life in Israel. So he found his path and eventually attended Sulam Yaakov in Jerusalem, where he received ordination as an Orthodox rabbi. You might think that set his career path, but there are a lot of rabbis in Israel. It's not really a job for too many people. At the same time, he got his tour guide license, which requires two years of training in Israel. When he first got to Israel, he tried to enter the army, but his physical health made that not an option for him. He married a wonderful young woman, and he had three sons in quick succession. So you might think this would be the end of the happy story of a young man's transition to a new life in a new country. But apparently God decided nothing was to be easy for Eitan. Without dwelling too much on tales of woe, Eitan faced an ongoing set of difficult challenges over the last 10 years. His fluctuating thyroid hormone levels returned from the tiny bits of thyroid tissue left behind from his surgery, causing some of the old symptoms to return. The severe excess thyroid levels from his teenage years had caused damage to the tiny muscles in his eyes, and the effects of the damage got worse over time, resulting in an inability to read normal-sized print. So, in a world where work meant either staring at a computer all day, which Eitan cannot do, or doing significant physical work all day, which his health does not allow, Eitan found himself effectively unemployable, except for his ability to work in the highly competitive tour guide business and with a family of five to support. It gets worse. Eitan also has daily chronic headaches, and periodic debilitating migraines that last from days to weeks. Effective treatment for these problems has been slow to emerge and only partially effective. His oldest son was born with rare cataracts in both eyes, requiring multiple surgeries and special schools to manage. His second son has celiac, the stomach problem that makes eating gluten seriously damaging, and learning disabilities. And his wife has a genetic anemia that contributed to her being overwhelmed with three toddlers and requiring more hands-on care duties than would otherwise be necessary from a time. So here you have a young immigrant with multiple illnesses, a needy family, a need to support them financially and emotionally, and the only earning capacity is a tour guide 
limited by his special need to be close to home and in reach of his struggling family. His response has been to face each day with courage and faith in God, faith that these challenges are meant to test his inner strength. Eitan has been a tower of strength and stability for his wife and children in the midst of his own pain. He has slowly improved his health with agonizing trips through the labyrinth of the Israeli health system that treats standard problems much better than mysterious autoimmune diseases and invisible headaches. He slowly built a tour guiding practice focusing on small groups that allow him to be away from home no more than a few nights at a time. He's created a set of technology tools including large print computer and phone screens and text to audio apps that allow him to function professionally in this high-tech world without being able to read normal-sized print or even read large print without triggering more severe headaches. It's been painful to watch all of this as his father. Fathers want to be able to solve and fix problems faced by their children, and it's painful to be unable to do much in the face of so many challenges. It's a universal issue to have to watch your children struggle and it's never easy. But Eitan has also been an inspiration to me. When he's not flat in bed with a migraine, he's being a great husband and father, and he's running his growing business where his clients give glowing reviews for his kindness, warmth, and knowledge. He revels in being part of the rebuilding of Israel as the home of the Jewish people and making Israel the home for his sons. When there were times when he was in despair and angry at himself, I would remind him of how much he's accomplished with all his health challenges. I would tell him he moved to a new country and became a rabbi and found a way to earn a living despite terrible odds and got married and became a tremendous father and husband, all with debilitating pain that would have caused most men to quit. To me, he's just heroic. He's been shaped by many things, and I like to think the virtues of perseverance and self-reliance have merged with his personal faith to create a unique American-Israeli hero. What a remarkable story, and again, we thank Mark Levy, and he's a listener at KOA in Denver, telling the story of his son, Eitan, and he is a hero. And my goodness, it is true that we parents have to watch in the end our kids go through pain and there's nothing we can do about it more often than not except hopefully have trained them to be able to endure it overcome it and persevere and the story of this young man's faith being the rock upon which he perseveres well it's so many of the stories we tell here on this great show mark levy's story his son anton's story here on our american stories
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all sorts here on this show. And this next one is a story about a bridge in Durham, North Carolina, that has captured the world's attention on YouTube. Today, Jesse brings us the story of the 11-foot, 8-inch high bridge. The 11-foot-8 bridge is a railroad trestle in Durham, North Carolina that people keep running into with their big trucks, buses, and RVs. Sometimes entire roofs of moving vans are removed, peeled and rolling back like a tin can. Big rigs are stuck under the thing. And despite many large warning signs and flashing lights, Warning drivers who dare to pass under its 11-foot-8 clearance. People just keep running into it. One day, Jurgen Hen started recording. The bridge is right outside my office. I started working in that building in 2002, and uh, every time a truck hits the bridge, we kind of notice because it's loud, usually. <laughs> and so over, over the years, and... You know, every, every few weeks we'd walk out there and check on the driver and, and kind of survey the mayhem. The trestle is over 100 years old, and at the time it was built, there were no standards for minimum clearance. On average, about once a month, the truck runs into the damn thing. In 2008, I was setting up a home security system and with, a, with you know, wireless cameras and decided that it would be kind of interesting to set up one of those cameras at the office to start filming the traffic and maybe catch one or two of these truck crashes to see what that actually looks like. I've never actually seen it happen in real life. As it happened, just a couple of weeks after I set up the camera, I caught the first crash and decided to put it on YouTube it became pretty popular right away, so clearly there was an interest for that kind of footage, so I sort of kept recording. There was not much overhead, really. The North Carolina Railroad Company owns the trestle, but lifting it would cost millions of dollars, so they installed a crash beam. It reduces the impact of trucks hitting the trestle by slicing open the vehicle like a 46 Ford cutting through a DeLorean. They call it the can opener. The road can't be lowered because of sewer lines underneath, and there are warning signs for three blocks leading up to it. There's even a sensor that can detect a truck that won't fit. If your rig is too tall, it'll trigger a sequence of massive flashing lights that specifically tell the driver to exit. But still, people keep hitting it. Jurgen has hundreds of videos of people crashing into this thing and millions of views on YouTube. He even collects parts of the crash debris and sells it back to his fans. I credit my wife for that idea. I mean, I just clean up a little bit when we go down there, kind of pick up the pieces. I notice that they're kind of cool looking. You know, sometimes they're bent in spirals or, or other interesting shapes. So I started keeping the, the, the more interesting looking pieces in my office. And over the years, well, one box after another, I eventually hauled some of those boxes home. <laughs> and my wife said, honey, 
Um, let's do something with these boxes of truck pieces. How about I try to sell them? And I'm like, sure, honey, you try to sell them. Well, she had actually, was actually onto something and um, you know, took some nice pictures, named the pieces, and uh, started our online store where we sell T-shirts and crash art. That was that, that moniker was also her idea to call it crash art. Lucrative is probably not the word that comes to mind. Um, I'm not about to quit my day job over this for sure. I, I would call it a self-sustaining hobby, making enough money off the t-shirt sales and, and crash art. And I have a Patreon page now too to help sort of sustain the whole thing. Every couple years or so, get new cameras so I can capture good, good high-quality footage. Now for the record, the actual clearance height of the 11-foot-8 bridge is 11-foot-10.8 which technically gives it 2.8 inches more than advertised. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And thanks for that story, Jesse. And people do everything in this country. They have all kinds of hobbies. Some people bowl. Some people play poker. Some people golf, knit. This guy, crash art. And as he said it, it's a self-sustaining hobby, and boy, that's better than most. Most of us have to pay for our hobbies. By the way, you can go to YouTube, and there's a video with somewhere over 7 million views of the ultimate montage of all the crashes that this gentleman has filmed over the years with his little homespun rigged camera that he just decided would capture all the crashes he'd never seen. Now he gets to see it. Now we all get to see it. And by the way, if you have quirky stories like this, passions, hobbies, or know people who do, send them our way. And that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. I'm trying to run down a guy who has a toaster museum. I'd seen an article about it somewhere. And if anybody knows, the wisdom of the crowds is great. I'd seen or read this story about a guy who'd collected toasters from the beginning of time and has turned his home and several others into this ultimate toaster museum. And that's right, toaster, T-O-A-S-T-E-R. And he's walking through it and talking about every single kind of toaster, the one-piece-of-toast toaster, then the two-piece-of-toast toaster, the ones that fold, the one that hold four. And he was just waxing poetic, and I can just imagine what his wife thinks of that toaster museum because it's tens of thousands of dollars in time, but if it keeps him off the streets, well, you know, what's the problem? Your hobbies, send them our way. A friend, somebody in town, ouramericannetwork.org. The story, the 11-foot, 8-inch bridge, actually, the 11-foot, 10-inch bridge, here on Our American Story. continue with our american stories and we love listeners stories 
And this next story comes to us from someone in Los Angeles who loves our show and follows it. He's Terry Tarwater, and here's his story that he calls Finding the American Dream in Pennsylvania. I was born 65 years ago in a small Midwestern town where a young couple conceived a child. They were unable to keep the child, and I came into the world prematurely at two pounds, four ounces. Lived a wonderful life, a fulfilling life. Matter of fact, at age 43, I had just entered into my 23rd year at the same company, but I walked into the office one day and there was gloom in the air, there was tension in the air. We were about to get bad news. Indeed, the boss came out and told us that the company had been disbanded. Our division had been eliminated. And one by one, he would discuss with us what our fate would be, what our options were. Tensions ran so high that one of my co-workers collapsed. Paramedics had to be called, and they escorted her out of the office on a gurney. Finally, it was my turn. I walked into the office where my boss told me my job had been eliminated, at least in the local office. All operations that I was performing were going to be consolidated into two locations, one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. I told him I'd be interested in staying with the company. If there's any way that could be possible, please let me know. And sure enough, several weeks later, I was told that there would be an internship in the East Coast office in Pennsylvania, and would I be interested in relocating to Pennsylvania? If so, they would be willing to send me back on an internship basis to Pennsylvania to examine the possibility of relocating. Well, at the very most, I'd be able to save my job. And if things didn't work out, at the very least, I'd be able to see Pennsylvania, a mother load of American history. So at age 43, I relocated to Pennsylvania, examining every aspect of relocating, and also exploring the incredible area I was living in. First time I got there, I was driving down Stefco Boulevard heading towards the Lehigh River when I was astonished to discover the home of my favorite childhood candy at Easter time, the Marshmallow Peep. They came from right there at Just Born Incorporated. About a block away from the plant, where my candy was manufactured, I came to the edge of the cliff looking over the Lehigh Valley, looking over the Lehigh River, and on the opposite side of the river was Bethlehem Steel, the steel that built the Empire State Building, the steel that built the Golden Gate Bridge, the steel that was crafted into Liberty ships. Over 1,100 ships in World War II were made from Bethlehem steel. 
and there it was on the opposite side of the river. Went a little further down the road, and I discovered the mother church of one of the oldest Protestant denominations of the world. Officially known as the Unitas Fraturum, Unity of the Brethren, it's more commonly known as the Moravian Church. Ancestors of the Moravians stretched all the way back to 100 years before Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. There in the Czech Republic, this denomination had a major revival in the 18th century and became one of the strongest missionary forces in the Christian Church. It was the first Protestant denomination to send out laymen and lay people as missionaries rather than clergy, and they were the first to try to evangelize the Native Americans. They established two settlements here in North America, one in North Carolina and one in Pennsylvania. Now the settlement in Pennsylvania was established in 1741 on Christmas Eve, and they named the town Bethlehem. I discovered the Moravian Cemetery, where every single headstone is a flat slab. Why? Because the church taught that we are all equal in the sight of God. No man is better than any other man. Therefore, no one deserves to have a headstone or a marble monument towering over everybody else in the cemetery. The area around Bethlehem was not only the home to the Moravian, but also Mennonites, Quakers, and Amish. Now the one thing that all of these Protestant denominations have in common is that they practice a deep, quiet, sincere faith. A faith that profoundly influences their work ethic. They're not just working to make money. They're not just working to support their family. They're working for God himself. All over the place in this region, I found evidence of the manifestation of this work ethic. Let me share with you just some of these things I discovered just by driving around. Right there by Bethlehem is Highway 22. If you get on Highway 22 and drive east, you're going to come to Nazareth, where the C.F. Martin and Company has been manufacturing fine guitars since 1833. After Nazareth, you come to Easton, the home of Crayola Crayon. And it was there in Easton that I saw a bridge to cross the Delaware River into New Jersey. As in Washington cross east the Delaware, as in the invasion of 1776 on Christmas Day, when George Washington invaded Trenton, New Jersey. Later on that summer, I went to that exact location and crossed the Delaware where Washington and his men did. Heading west out of Bethlehem, I discovered a splendid example of the next chapter in the history of American transportation. That'll be the railroads. I ended up at Strasburg, where I visited the Railroad Museum of Pennsylvania. Once again, Pennsylvania played a prominent role in the history of transportation. I mean, 
Who doesn't think of Penn Central Station in New York City when you hear about the Penn Central Railroad? Well, there in the Railroad Museum, I was able to walk among over a hundred railroad cars and locomotives. I saw the actual GG1 electric locomotive, which anybody who is a Lionel train nut would recognize. GG14913 to State Tower. We're on the move. Over. For the GG1 locomotive was an iconic locomotive used by the Pennsylvania Railroad, reproduced by Lionel trains in the 40s and 50s. That toy train set was so popular that uh, Lionel Trains re-released it in the 75th anniversary edition. And here I was standing in front of the actual original locomotive. Continuing west, I drove down the Pennsylvania Turnpike, one of the first controlled access multi-lane superhighways. This highway has been carrying travelers since 1940 and it's the forerunner of our modern interstate highway system. Going down that road, I drove into Reading, Pennsylvania, the birthplace of Daniel Boone. And, of course, every Monopoly player knows about the Reading Railroad, <laughs> Valley Forge, where Washington and his army suffered through the winter of 1777 after they failed to retake Philadelphia from the British. And we're listening to Terry Tarwater and his story called Finding the American Dream in Pennsylvania. My goodness, from adversity, finding out that his, well, his job had been lost and he'd have to suffer real relocation. But what an attitude, what a spirit. Well, heck, what's next? At 43, rather than, well, lick his own wounds and have a pity party for himself, he figures, hey... Pennsylvania, there's a lot of history there. And he's sharing a lot of it with us right now when we continue more of Terry Tarwater, his story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. continue here on Our American Stories with a story from one of our listeners in Los Angeles, Terry Tarwater, and we continue with a story he's calling Finding the American Dream in Pennsylvania. I ended up in Hershey, the home of the King of Chocolate, where the street lights are shaped like Hershey's Kisses. And in my hotel room all night long, the air smelled like they were baking chocolate chip cookies. Maybe that was because Reese's peanut butter cups were being manufactured right next door. Lancaster, the middle of Amish country, covered bridges, and the most fertile, non-irrigated farmland in the United States. Every children's book I ever saw about farms those pictures were Lancaster Farms, Gettysburg, 
where time has been frozen at that moment in 1868, when brother fought against brother in the worst war in our nation's history. Everywhere I went in Gettysburg, I would look down at a National Park placard bearing an image photographed by Matthew Brady in 1868, and then look up and see with my own eyes the exact same landscape, the exact same rock formation. I was very lucky to visit Gettysburg when Civil War reenactors were encamped just outside of town off the National Park land. In fact, the hotel I stayed at was on the location of General Robert E. Lee's headquarters. And one morning, when I woke up and went outside, the Civil War reenactor that was playing General Lee was doing a living history demonstration with several other gentlemen teaching young people about one interesting facet of the Civil War. I really praise these reenactors because they are patriots to help keep our history alive. They recreate the lives of our forefathers who fought to preserve the way of life that they thought was best. I visited the Eisenhower Farm, where our nation's 34th president retreated for weekends and where he eventually retired. Finally, I entered into Philadelphia itself the city of brotherly love. I not only went to what we now call Independence Hall, but I explored that entire historical section of the city that runs along Chestnut Street from 2nd Street all the way up to 6th Street. I'll never forget standing in that courtyard where I had Independence Hall on my left, and behind me was the beautiful headquarters of the Curtis Publishing Company. You know, Curtis Publishing, like Saturday Evening Post, like Ladies Home Journal, and of course, when you think of Saturday Evening Post, you think of the Norman Rockwell covers. Well, at that time, there was a City of Philadelphia Museum that was located in the Atwater Kent Building. There's a name for you, Atwater Kent, the most popular radios in the 1920s. Unfortunately, that museum is no longer in operation. A great loss. I hope it comes back someday. And remembering the lunch I had there in Philadelphia when I was sitting right across the street from the Second Bank of the United States reminds me of another facet of Pennsylvania. The food. Pierogies. Scrapple. Chow chow. And of course cheese steak. Now, my grocery store here in Southern California, we have a snack aisle, but that aisle is filled with every single kind of salty snack you can think of. But in my market in Bethlehem, that same aisle is 75% pretzels, 25% everything else. Time after time, I experienced little pockets of the American dream known as the mom-and-pop restaurant. These family-run operations were serving up Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine, cheesesteak sandwiches, ice cream, water ice. Take, for example, Walsh Restaurant in Allentown. Now, that restaurant had been there since 1936. That restaurant was so popular that at one time, 
they, in one year's time, they would be serving two and a half tons of whole turkey, 18,000 pounds of smoked ham, and 30,000 pounds of potatoes, and you could wash it down with about 10,500 pounds of ground coffee that they brewed up for you. At Allentown Landmark, serving classic Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine. I was lucky enough to eat there twice before the restaurant closed for good and the real estate had been purchased by a drugstore company. What a loss. But Pennsylvania ice cream. I have never had ice cream better than what I had in Pennsylvania. It's no wonder that Penn State offers a seven-day short course in ice cream manufacturing. Now, a close relative of ice cream is water ice. Now, water ice is sort of like a slush, sort of like a snow cone, but it's very finely ground and oh, so good. The best way to eat your water ice is to get it as a parfait, where they put a layer of water ice, a layer of vanilla soft serve ice cream, and then another layer of water ice, and build that puppy up. One of the strongest memories I have of my time in Pennsylvania is the family sitting on the curb and on the front stoop of the building in the neighborhood next to the water ice stand, eating their frozen desserts on a hot summer night. You see, every water ice store I saw was a small mom and pop operation. They didn't even have dining facilities. It's just a walk-up window. And then you just sat on the curb somewhere to eat your water ice. Incredible. After about a month, the internship ended. And unfortunately, my wife and I decided that a move back east just would not be economically feasible. So I came back here to Southern California, but I never forgot what I learned in Pennsylvania, what I saw in Pennsylvania. People from humble beginnings with a strong faith had an idea, had a dream, had something they wanted to do. And here in America, they had the freedom to do it, to develop their idea, to establish a creative way of marketing that idea, of manufacturing that product, the freedom to sell it, the freedom to enjoy the return on their investment of time and imagination and money and become not only financially successful, but emotionally successful and taking that financial success and not hoarding it to themselves selfishly but finding a way to give back to others. This is the American dream. These are the things I learned from Pennsylvania. This is our American story. And well done Terry and again what a story. I mean, he gets relocated to a far-off place, and what an attitude he has about it. He just gets curious and starts to drive around, and I know this part of the country well. And my goodness, the Marshmallow Peep Factory in Lehigh Valley. Oh, this is just one of my favorite treats in the world, and just the smell from that factory is a joy. And my goodness, Bethlehem Steel, the story of Hershey, which, by the way, we told. Milton Hershey's life story, one of the great American stories, not just in delivering us the great Hershey kiss, but all those adopted kids Milton Hershey has taken care of 
because of that vast fortune he created. And again, he created that fortune by giving Americans a shot at chocolate, something before him that was only afforded to the wealthy. He was able to bring the prices in line, employ lots of people, drive a tax base, and then give all that money away and so much more. And so, you know, we're looking for stories like this in storytellers all around the country. And send your stories of your pocket of America to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Terry Tarwater's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Today, we're talking with Harlan Lebo, who's written a terrific book, 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. Harlan writes about Woodstock, the Manson murders, the internet, and what we'll be discussing today the moon landing. So let's start at the beginning, if we can. Who is Vannevar Bush, and why did you lead with his story? Vannevar Bush is one of the great unsung heroes of, well, America, but American policy, American government, and in large measure, the hero of how we all think and learn today. He was a scientist in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. He was constantly observing the American scene, looking at the mistakes that had been made in America before him. And the time was ripe, right at the end of World War II, to try to establish where we were going to go from here after World War II. And President Roosevelt asked him that very question, asked him for a detailed outline of how we could proceed as a nation. And Vannevar Bush wrote it. And Roosevelt did not live to see it, but it was presented to President Truman in 1945. And it really was a plan called Science, the Endless Frontier, that set the standard for how America would train its next generation of scientists, technicians, and engineers, and in the process also train and educate all the rest of us as well. America was a powerhouse. It was the great engine of industry, production, in technology, uh, equipment, farm implements, steel. Uh, it was also the great resource provider of the Western world for years and years and years. But that had very little to do with original thinking in terms of doing basic research and understanding core discovery. Most of that was coming from the great research institutions in Europe and in Great Britain. And that was painfully obvious to a very small number of people in America who were thought that it was just fine that we led the world in making steel and bridges and creating food. Um, but it didn't leave America in a place for advancing itself very well in a, in a changing world. And the changing world started as early as World War I. As a great example of this, the, the airplane, the first airplane flown by the Wright brothers, was American. From there, progress was very slow for a lot of reasons. The Wright brothers were very contentious about their legal rights to the airplane. Uh, there were a lot of lawsuits. It held progress back. And if you look at the Wright brothers, in 1903, December of 1903, they made the first flight in uh, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. 
Well, not a whole lot happened in terms of progress, even by the Wright brothers, in terms of flight for several years. It wasn't until really 1909 that things really started to get going with the airplane again, in large measure because the Wrights were trying unsuccessfully, for the most part, to advance their own planes and to protect their rights. Um, all of that managed to have a giant magnifying glass put on it during the World War I, when America was finally drawn into World War I in April of 1917, we did not have one combat aircraft ready to deploy in Europe. Our famous pilots like Eddie Rickenbacker, they flew French planes or British planes. They didn't fly American planes in combat. And that was just one example of how America was unprepared. And Vannevar Bush noted that, remembered that, and wanted to make sure that after World War II that America was better prepared than it was for more than a century before that. Let me read something from your book. It really stuck out. A scorecard of the Nobel Prizes, the world's premier awards for scientific achievement, is perhaps an oversimplified tally, but it nevertheless says much about the status of basic research in the United States. Between 1901 and 1945, 111 Nobel Prizes were awarded in physics, chemistry, and medicine. The United States, with more universities and institutions than many of the other leading countries combined, won a total of only 18 of those prizes in those fields. This was a catalyst for Bush, right? He wanted to change that number. He wanted to. And the easiest way to understand that is to look at the difference between applied research and basic research. Applied research is refining things that already exist, making better farm implements, finding better ways to make steel, finding more efficient ways to create military weapons or build buildings. And America did that very well. But in terms of basic research, looking at new, new findings, new understanding of the world and core discoveries, that's what the United States was not strong on. And the great example of that was we had very few research universities in this country, even into the 1920s there weren't. When, when the physics lab was created at Harvard, uh, it was more than 200 years after the university had been created. So things started to happen with the creation of the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, the first university in the United States that was deliberately created as a research institution. Uh, but it was slow going. And basic research was way underfunded, even through World War II. And to what degree did the GI Bill, obviously there was some real push in legislation, but to what degree did the GI Bill help jettison in a lot of this too, the, the degree to which the government started to get involved in funding well, institutions and education, higher education in general? Right. The GI Bill was a huge catalyst for putting many, many, many more people in college than it had ever been before. So it was really two issues side by side. Vannevar Bush created his plan called Science the Endless Frontier, which established where the United States could go with the proper funding in terms of training scientists, engineers, technicians, creating a whole core of intellectual discovery at the major universities in the United States and providing the money to do it. So that was that started immediately after World War II at exactly the same time that millions of Americans, mostly men, were uh, coming out of the military and looking for something to do and the GI Bill was there to support them. So millions went to college. Millions were able to be trained in technical and scientific and engineering fields that would never have happened before. And the results were dramatic. Uh, and that really did establish the 
intellectual and technical capabilities of the United States to move forward with great new plans, not just to build bigger and better buildings, to be, create new and innovative processes and techniques and things. And one of those things that got created was an entire enterprise of a space program. And we're talking to Harlan Lebo. The book is 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. This hour, we're talking about the moon and the moon landing, but all the events and all the things that happened and the people who made it happen. Uh, we're walking through that, and we'll return with Harlan Lebo uh, after these messages. This is Our American Story. And we continue here on Our American Stories with Harlan Lebo, his book, 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. Go to Amazon.com and buy it. You won't put it down. And the fun of it is you can just read each of these as almost their own book because it feels like four books inside one. Let's talk about the next central character in this book, and that is a man named Werner von Braun. Uh, talk about who he was and why he was so important for the United States. And the space program. Werner von Braun was a rocket nut. That's the only way to describe him, just like we have computer nuts today. He was a German scientist and engineer uh, whose dream was always to fly into outer space, to have a great civilian space program. Well, right after World War I was no time to be having that dream in Germany because there was no money for anything. Uh, but he did. he was involved as a hobbyist in the space program in Germany. The, the short version is... The German military saw the opportunity to create a military base for its, its offensive forces by using rockets because the Versailles Treaty after World War I had eliminated most other opportunities for them to create a military platform for an offensive strategy. So they had the money to put into to rocketry. Werner von Braun joined the German space program, the German military space program, and was the perfect fit. He was young, brilliant, a tremendous charismatic leader, uh, and developed and led the creation of the entire German rocket program, which, with the exception of the V-1, which came late in the war, which was sort of a, a point-and-shoot weapon that could be shot down, it flew f slower than the speed of sound. The ultimate, the ultimate tool that von Braun created was the V-2 rocket. It was the first ballistic rocket, the first faster than uh, speed of sound rocket that could be, that could be targeted fairly closely. And that rocket was fired several thousand times toward the end of the war in the attempt to be the ultimate weapon for the Germans. And von Braun was also developing plans for even longer-range missiles, missiles that from Europe could reach not just Britain, but could cross the Atlantic and hit the East Coast of the United States. All of that ended in the early months of 1945, when it was clear that, that Germany was going to lose the war. Von Braun and his team knew that. They evacuated their, their operations in northern Germany, managed to get to the south of the country, into the uh, German Alps, the Bavarian Alps, and planned their own surrender. And they did not want to surrender to the Russians. They wound up surrendering to the United States. 
And at the same time that he was planning to surrender, he, Von Braun was already being targeted as an asset for the United States. The United States in the waning days of World War II had thousands of experts all over Europe scouring both written and published records as well as looking for talent and manpower that could be applied to the American enterprise after the war. And Werner von Braun and his team were high on that list, at least their material was. And as a result, the United States was able to confiscate about 400 railroad cars full of rocketry equipment and actual V-2 missiles and other related equipment and plans that were taken to the United States. And the decision at that point was made because von Braun had surrendered in early May of 1945 was to bring along von Braun and his team to serve on the American space program. So it's, it's not an exaggeration at all to say that literally months, a few months after von Braun was planning the, the uh, air assault, the aerospace rocketry assault on the United States, he was in the United States working for the American government on our space program. It's quite a story, and it showed the pragmatism of American officials. Uh, let's face it, we didn't want the Russians to get von Braun. We needed him, and though he had launched 3,100, it says you, you wrote 3,100 of these V-2 rockets were launched at London and Antwerp and other targets throughout Europe. And, of course, the plan was, well, one day America, too. But we, we took him anyway. We took a Nazi who had killed allies and it wasn't without political dissent, was it? No, there was some protest about it. Uh, the protest didn't really surface until later. I, uh, probably 1946, 1947, there was some fussing over it. But I think that really is one of the most morally disturbing episodes of World War II and its aftermath. It really says as much about von Braun and his team, who built the V-2, by the way, with more than 10,000 deaths caused by slave labor alone. In fact, there were more people who died building the V-2 than were killed by the V-2 being landed at its targets. But it also says a whole lot about America's decisions about national security in a post-war world. We had entered a world where we were in direct conflict with the Soviet Union, fortunately a cold war, not a hot war. But we recognized at the time that we felt we needed to be ready for a hot war. And what was the way to do that? We had a very early baby space program, and it needed the kind of talent that von Braun and his team could bring to it. So we made the command decisions to bring him into our space program. What would have been the better solution? To jail him, to have him executed, to let the Soviets get him? Uh, probably not, but it doesn't mean it's any less morally troubling. That's what leadership is sometimes about, and even statesmanship. Um, sometimes you have to calibrate these things correctly, or the higher cost in not bringing von Braun to the United States could have been that a foreign power got his talents and his teams. I want to read something because it was so interesting. Van Braun would become thoroughly American. He married a distant cousin and raised a family when he moved to the Army's missile facilities in Huntsville, Alabama, ahead of rocket development. He took out a FAH loan to buy a house and he became a respected civic leader. A bit later, you said Von Braun would connect with Walt Disney and guide him on a tour of the Huntsville operations. Ten years after leading Nazi rocket development, Von Braun was on Walt Disney's TV series telling American families about the space projects to come. That's just rich. He always, in spite of, his, in spite of the deal with the devil he made, and it really was a deal with the devil to be part of the German 
space program. And he always defended being part of the German military operation, just like Americans would be part of their own military operation. What he could never defend and really ducked for many years was the role of slave labor in creating his, in creating his weapons. Uh, he never really truly showed his complicity in that. But uh, he was... He was a German. He felt he needed to support his space program and his military program, but he really did always want to be involved in civilian space. And he came to this country. He was working on our space program, which at that moment when he came was very much a military program. So he was still developing military weapons, and it would become it would be a very long time. It would be almost 10 years before the right kind of a spark got lit that would ignite our interest in non-military space, and von Braun became proud of that very quickly. Let's talk about the next key figure, and let's talk about Sam Krauss. Who was he? Sam Krauss is a lifelong friend of my family who just happened to be one of the early aerospace scientists, like thousands of others like him, who worked on a variety of programs across the country in NASA facilities. Of course, then they weren't called NASA. It was called NACA, or they actually was called NACA. They didn't use the acronym as a word. They called it the NACA. And ever since World War I, the NACA was the American primary basic development organization with facilities in Maryland, in Northern California, in Virginia, and in several other places as well that developed questions about aviation, primarily propeller aviation and airplanes. But that changed, of course, as other things changed, like the arrival of the jet engine, the arrival of supersonic travel, and the, the questions generally that come with speed. Speed and altitude are the driving issues in, in when the transition between aviation, meaning planes, and aerospace, meaning not just planes, but anything that flies at any altitude, including rockets and supersonic jets, those issues became more and more part of the NACA operation. And Sam, like thousands of others, was involved in those answering those basic questions. Basic questions as basic as how do you get a fast-moving object from outer space to land safely on the ground uh, without burning up? That was a basic question that no one really understood until that came out of research at this facility that Sam Krauss worked at. And when we continue, Harlan Lebo takes us through this remarkable chapter in his book, 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. And by the way, you say a crucial major difference between aviation and aerospace is heat. We just talked about how these men were trying to solve this problem. When we come back, even bigger problems to come. Landing a man on the moon, no duck walk. Again, the book is 100 Days. Go to Amazon.com, to BarnesandNoble.com. Go to a bookstore, buy the book. Or at 100daysbook.com. That's 100daysbook.com. All in Lebo's story, 1969, here on Our American Story.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with Harlan Lebo. His book, 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America, Beep. Uh, why the chapter title Beep? Beep indicates the great milestone in the American space program. It had absolutely nothing to do with anything that America had done and everything to do with what the Soviet Union had done. On October 4th, 1957, it was a large surprise, to say the least, that the Soviet Union had launched the first orbiting object around the globe, Sputnik 1. Uh, the first time anything had been launched to that altitude, it was orbiting the Earth, it was going over the heads of everyone in the United States, and the Russians were very conveniently willing to tell us when and where you could listen to the sound that it made, because all that Sputnik 1 did was fly over our heads and go beep, beep, beep. And you can hear those sounds. There's a listing in the back of my book of where you can go to hear that sound, but that was an amazing transformation. It took the country by storm. Um, there's still some contention now looking back on it. Was America terrified or just fascinated by that experience? But there's no question that they were fascinated whether they were terrified or not. The fact that the Soviets, who were viewed as a still as a backwards country in many ways, could somehow manage to beat us to the punch in putting a satellite in orbit was a big shock to the American public and especially to the American Congress. Indeed, you write on the CBS Evening News, Walter Cronkite often called the most trusted man in America, put the issue into perspective. Sputnik is a serious threat, if not to our immediate security, then to our sense of security. Life magazine, often the great interpreter of the American character, declared that Sputnik was a devastating blow to the prestige of the United States. And we had a great wartime president in charge, Eisenhower. And he didn't see this one coming and didn't actually respond quickly to the problem. I don't know that he'd quite seen the problem or identified it as fast as he could have or should have. No, because he had been, whether he chose the decision or not, his advisors told him that the satellite program that we had should rely on quality rather than speed. They, weren't, they wanted to build and were building a satellite that had some technical capability that could be put in the air, not as quickly as the Russians claimed they were going to do their own satellite. And as a result, we waited too long, and no one in the Eisenhower administration who was willing to make a decision was thinking about the importance of being first. Well, we, we never missed that lesson again. There are many times where we weren't first, especially in the space program, but there was no doubt about it that uh, we learned that being first is a heck of a lot more important than being good. Uh, and as a result, our space program was behind the Russians for, from the beginning, and it immediately set us up for having a, a uh, space race with the Russians. Who was going to advance the fastest, and then who would make it to the moon fastest, because that was the ultimate goal for both of our programs at the time. Uh, although we didn't even have a well-defined idea of getting to the moon and landing on the moon for another four years after Sputnik launched. And that goes into the Kennedy administration. Let's talk about Ike and how he saw one of the problems being the competition and the rivalries, the internal internecine rivalries between the branches of the military and his decision to form a separate entity to house this kind of research and talk about that. Eisenhower was convinced that we should not put a satellite in space that flew aboard a military rocket. 
which is strange because it was no secret at all that the the rocket that launched Sputnik 1 into space was a variant of one of their uh, missile carrying uh, bomb carrying missiles. Uh, so Eisenhower wanted to wait until the development of the Navy Reconnaissance Laboratory, which is <laughs> which somehow he viewed as a civilian operation, even though it was run by the Navy, that they would get their our first shot at putting a satellite in space. And that's what happened. It took longer than they hoped. It was, it was a unreliable platform and they tried to get it launched in December of 1957. And it was a national disaster. So let's talk about the space war because it really in the end ramps up because it ultimately becomes a political issue in the 1960 race. Talk about how Kennedy first viewed the space program and then how did that impression of its importance change uh, as he went from being a candidate to being a young president of the United States? Well, Kennedy was not an early believer in the space program. Kennedy knew, even when he was a senator in the late 50s, that a space program mounted with any level of effectiveness was going to be a very expensive proposition. And it was going to carve up money that could be devoted to other social programs and other projects at home, on the ground at least. But as he became, as it came closer to the 1960 election, and it was clear that Kennedy was going to run, and it was clear that a space race between the Russians and us was active, it was already active, even though we didn't have a lot of effectiveness then yet, Kennedy did start to embrace the program. But he knew that it needed a more defined objective. Uh, and he knew that there needed to be a, a time period attached to that. So very early in his administration, uh, in one of his first speeches to a joint session of Congress, he talked about the great needs, great national needs. And one of those great national needs was to take the extraordinary step of creating part of a, a part of NASA would be to devote uh, before the 1960s were concluded, a mission that would take astronauts to the moon and return them to Earth. That had never been part of the Eisenhower program. And at that, during the Eisenhower years, there were some plans, still not well-defined, to send a rocket to the moon with men on board and return it, but not to land. That was considered way too complex and not possible. And this was after the Mercury program was created. So we already had our Mercury program and our first seven astronauts in place, and they were starting a program. And that was really as far as the program was going to go, at least, it, as, at least as far as the Eisenhower administration was concerned. There were some very tentative plans until Kennedy in May of 1961 made the great declaration to Congress that we should go to the moon and land and return. By the way, you write here, within weeks of that joint session speech, Congress would increase NASA's budget by 89% and double it the following year. With a total of 15 minutes of experience in manned spaceflight, the United States had committed to spending billions for a lunar landing in less than nine years. The countdown clock was ticking. I'll talk about that. It was. Uh, even today, looking back on it, it is absolutely incredible that we were able to pull this off. And Kennedy recognized that in his speech. He made a major speech about space at Rice University in September of 1962, talking about the great challenges of going to the moon using rockets that had not been built yet, using materials that had not even been discovered yet, using techniques and, and other practices that were not even known and had to be developed from scratch. Uh, and all of those things 
by the way, shooting at a target a quarter of a million miles away with three people on board and bringing them back alive was an incredible operation. And it took an extraordinary, an extraordinary national commitment. But Kennedy believed he combined two great, great techniques in the way he presented this to the American people. First, he strongly believed that the only reason we should be doing the space, the mission to the moon, was to establish the United States as the preeminent science and technological power on Earth, uh, in many ways more powerful than the Russians. Now, that had its own complications because of the Vietnam War and other issues, so it may not have been as successful as it could have been in that respect. But the, the other issue was the fact that we could, we could even attempt this and do this required such a huge investment involving thousands of companies, more than 400,000 Americans in all kinds of fields, using resources from every state in the United States, uh, was only possible uh, because of the amount of money that we were going to spend on this. And he was very concerned about that. He, he expressed, not publicly, but in conversations that had been recorded, that he was not that interested in space. He thought it was good to explore space, but he didn't think it was worth billions and billions unless there was a specific reason to go. And that was, at this point, to surpass the Russians and to establish ourselves. And we're talking to Harlan Lebo. The book is 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. More with this remarkable story here on Our American Stories. We continue with Harlan Lebo. The book is 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. Go to Amazon.com, buy it now. You will not put it down. We've been talking about this great Rice University speech. Kennedy was a salesman. He had to sell this now. He was putting so much at risk with the amount of money and time and resources behind this mission. Let's take a listen to one part of Kennedy's speech at Rice University. There is no strife. No prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. And Harlan, we were talking offline and talking about what a salesman he was. He was trying to tap that national pride of doing the impossible and doing something hard and something big and bold and deserving of the American people's talents and ambitions. 
And I think you just hit on it right there. That was the driving force behind what many things that Kennedy proposed, whether it was the uh, space program or the Peace Corps or many other domestic issues at home, in particular civil rights, was to establish them as great challenges that the American people were willing to take on and succeed at doing. Let's talk a little about this this technical achievement. Kennedy Kennedy passes never to see his mission accomplished, right? But uh, in the end, we dig in. Talk about some of the technological achievements, because there were so many different things we had to accomplish all at once, and each problem prompted a solution that prompted another problem, and there was more troubleshooting than we could imagine. But what were a couple of the big problems that we had to take care of? If you could maybe talk about the top two or three. Well, the biggest problem, of course, is how you get how you get three men, everything they needed to live, and their equipment on a journey into space, which means getting them into Earth orbit, spinning them around the Earth, pushing them out into space, and getting them to the moon. And that required the largest, most powerful rocket ever created, by far the most complicated physical device ever built. Uh, again, much of it with technology that was not proven in the Saturn V rocket. It was the tallest rocket we'd ever built. It was by far the most powerful we'd ever done. Uh, it alone, fully loaded with fuel, weighed about as much as a Navy cruiser. Uh, the explosive impact, had it exploded on the pad, would have been the equivalent of about 4,000 tons of TNT. Uh, it was devastating in its technical complexity. Three million moving parts, 70,000 systems, uh, just to get a vehicle carrying three men into outer space around the globe and to the moon. So the biggest one was just designing the Saturn V in a way that would work. And as complicated as it was, as incredible a project as it was, it flew 13 times and it made it into orbit and made it on its way all 13 times with only with one mission having very minor problems that were uh, fixed almost immediately. That was Apollo 6. But it worked. Uh, but the, the, when you look at the space program, one of the things that really is really fascinating about it is what you just touched on, is that every problem leads to another, even if you solve it, every problem leads to a solution, and that solution leads to another problem. Uh, and there were thousands upon thousands of problems, everything from you know, how the guys go to the bathroom in space to how you feed them, uh, how they survive you know, space sickness, um, how you survive the launch, uh, the, this, the most basic one, how do you get the rocket from where it's built in the assembly building out to the pad? All of these things were tremendous challenges. Um, probably the biggest of the challenges other than the rocket itself was the lunar lander, which was a very complex, very fragile device uh, built by Grumman on Long Island. And it had problems from the start. It was uh, an amazing, amazing challenge to build a craft light enough, but versatile enough to get the two men who were going to fly it from the Apollo command module in orbit around the moon down to the Earth, the moon's surface, and then back again. Um, that was very difficult, a very difficult prospect. Indeed, it was fascinating. In the assembly, they had to build a 526-foot-tall vehicle assembly building, and then to get this gigantic missile, this gigantic rocket, 
6.2 million tons. They had to build a special road called the Crawler Way because take this sucker over any normal road and it collapses. And so, as, as you said, one problem leads to another, but there we are on the fateful day, and the world gets to watch this thing explode and catapult into the air and talk about how the media and the world covered it because, in the end, 600 million people around the world watched this. Yes, for Apollo 11, there were you know, more than 600 million people either watched it on TV or at least land and watched the men on the moon, watched Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong on the moon, or listened to it on the radio or watched it later in coverage. Uh, they did make it. The, the the mission Apollo 11 flew without the slightest hitch. Uh, it worked perfectly. The small problem, the one small problem they had on on landing was that they overloaded their computer, which by today's standards, the average cell phone these days has much more power. The cell phone you hold in your hand has much more power than the entire computing operation that ran the Apollo mission to the moon. So the entire floor of computers in Houston at the at the Johnson Space Flight Center has much less computing had at the time much less computing power than your cell phone does now. But other than that one small problem on landing with the compute with the computer, they did manage to land successfully, can do their mission successfully, and then come home. And the world really did stop. Uh, around the world, people stopped where they were. They watched it on TV. They stayed at home. They saw it in the marketplace in in the middle of India or in the jungle of Vietnam or at looking at a storefront television when back when there were storefront televisions in the United States and the world was completely absorbed by three men traveling to the moon and two of them landing there. In the Bronx where the Yankees were playing the Washington Senators, a message went up on the scoreboard, they're on the moon, as the game was halted for a moment of silence followed by the singing of America the Beautiful. In Moscow, Soviet citizens were photographed watching excerpts of the moonwalk, seemingly reluctant to acknowledge the inevitable. Soviet media buried the story late in broadcast, but Russians were seen celebrating and congratulating Americans. It's a great day, said one Muscovite. Uh, That's just remarkable, because you can't, in the end, as much as there was competition, in the end, a human being, an earthling, had landed on the moon. Yes, it it really was it really did literally bring the whole world together, if only briefly, but it brought the whole world together to share the experience of our landing Apollo 11 on the moon. I'm going to read uh, one final uh, paragraph. In spite of the delays, the pressure, and the extraordinary demands of creating the most technically rigorous experiment in history, the nation had responded to Kennedy's challenge. Eight years and two months after the declaration to Congress, 400,000 people across the country and three astronauts in Apollo 11 had succeeded in landing on the moon with five months to spare. Yep. They they made it. Had it not, we had a very tragic fire on Apollo 1. Apollo 1 was in testing on the pad in Kennedy Space Center. Apollo 1 had a, a fire on board the Apollo spacecraft and three of our astronauts were killed. Had it not been for that and the delays in the mission caused by the investigation and the refurbishing of the spacecraft, we would have been that we might have gone earlier. But the other side of that is, if it hadn't been for the, that fire and those three men dying, we probably wouldn't have made it to the moon anyway because the the spacecraft would not have made it. But we made it with five months to spare, 
And what's extraordinary about looking at uh, the American space program and talking to anybody who was involved with it at the time is that or those original words before the decade is out that Kennedy used when he spoke to Congress, before the decade is out, rang true for all of them. And it resonated for the entire decade. They never forgot that that was part of the initial goal. And that really was the driving force behind the mission. And we did make it with five months to spare. Ah, uh, the power of a deadline. Any editor's greatest moment is knowing what they can do to a writer when they say finish it by Sunday. But my goodness, what a deadline Kennedy had set. 100 days, how four events in 1969 shaped America. We're talking to Harlan Lebo, the book's author. And by the way, if you'd like a copy of Harlan's book for yourself, you can find it at Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, or at 100daysbook.com. That's 100daysbook.com. Harlan Lebo's story, 1969, here on Our American Story. This is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory@oanetwork.org. That's yourstory@oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it.